Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 281, being recorded on Thursday, November 18th, 2021. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, as you and the listeners know, I am a huge CNBC junkie, and you can't turn on CNBC during er- during earnings seasons without seeing Mark Mahaney. He is one of the top internet analysts. Uh, he was actually on recently talking about the artist previously known as Facebook Meta. Uh, Mark has a new book out called, quote unquote, Nothing But Net, and is joining us tonight to give listeners an early peek of what is sure to be a bestseller. In the book, Mark covers some of our favorite companies, including Amazon, Apple, Facebook, slash Meta, Google, Netflix, Twitter, and Uber. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, guys. Mark, we are uh, thrilled to chat with you. As you know, Scott is a huge Amazon fanboy, so like anytime he gets a chance to talk Amazon, he's excited. Uh, and I'm super excited because uh, after tonight's show, I'm going to be smart enough to get rich like you and Scott, so that's pretty pretty exciting for me. Um, but before we jump into all that, we always like to uh, give listeners a little bit of a feel uh, for our guest background. And in your case, I know, I think you're officially the the oldest analyst on Wall Street. Is that true? <laughs> well, let's see, oldest and longest lasting internet analyst on Wall Street, but I don't look the part. Um, so how about we do that? Yes, I've been covering internet stocks since uh, 1998 through a series of uh, banks. I, I started working with this tremendous analyst. Her name was Mary Meeker. Her name is Mary Meeker and uh, started uh, the first Friday uh, I was on Wall Street. I got a call from the CFO of this tiny little online auction company that sold Pez dispensers and was looking to see whether any banks would be interested in their IPO. That company was eBay. So I wasn't there at the beginning of the Internet, but uh, I was there pretty close to the beginning of the commercial or the public market Internet. And it's been a fascinating ride. And I thought there were a lot of lessons I could draw both from the successes, the market and failures in the market and my personal successes and failures as a stock picker. Cool. Let's, uh, so uh, name some of the firms. So in my recollection, you've probably worked at six firms. Like how many firms have you worked at over, over that career? Yeah. Now, I don't, I don't want you to think I, you know, I, I jump around too much, but I started off at uh, Morgan Stanley, also worked at uh, Citibank, uh, Royal Bank of Canada, uh, a small, boot, wonderful boutique called American Technology Research. And uh, I'm currently at Evercore ISI, but I've been doing nothing but net, hence the title of the book. And that's been my email tagline or always online. It's one of those two. It's been my email tagline for 25 years, but nothing but net. And that's uh, just doing my best to try to stay ahead of these internet stocks, the early ones, the the Ebays, the Amazons, the Yahoo, Excite, if you might remember them, InfoSeek, uh, and then uh, and then uh, AOL, uh, and then uh, and then later on, uh, some of the more dynamic ones that uh, came out uh, and ended up with uh, names like uh, Uber, including most recently one you talked about, uh, Warby Parker. So it's been a fascinating span and arguably one of the most dynamic uh, parts of Wall Street. I guess if you were working as an analyst on Wall Street or a portfolio manager, or a portfolio manager, if you could have picked two sectors to be a part of to track over the last twenty five years, one of them has to have been the internet. Just how explosive it's been. There've been plenty of uh, negative explosions in there, but there's been some wonderful wealth creation. The other sector would probably be software. Um, just just two wonderful industries. I got lucky. I was I was part of the internet. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't uh, pick mall focused REITs, that would have been a bad choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So, you know, as Jason mentioned, uh, there, there's kind of this auspicious uh, title that you have of the the oldest, I would say, wisest uh, and most longest lasting internet analyst. Tell us about some of the, as you reflect, and, and the book has kind of got some really good stories and, and you know, you've been kind of on the front row seat of a lot of cool stuff. Maybe tell us what was your worst pick and best pick in, in the span of the career there? Well, I had a sell on Google uh, at close to its IPO. Um, I was brought on to CNBC show and told by uh, none other than Jim, Jim Cramer that I was an analyst with a three egg omelet on my face because of my sell call. He was right. Uh, I was wrong. Uh, so, you know, one doesn't pretend one doesn't tend to forget moments like that on public television being you know told that, uh, you know, you're pretty much an ass. Uh, but it does happen. You know, there are axes and then there are, you know, others. Uh, and uh, so I, I've made plenty of mistakes. I had a buy on Blue Apron, although the lessons from that turned out to be different than I thought. I got the call wrong, but the lessons were different than I thought. I kind of dissect that a little bit uh, in the book. So those are some of my uh, some of my worst calls. I think my two, my three best calls have frankly been sticking with a buy on Amazon for pretty much the last 15 years. Uh, Netflix for the last uh, 12 years and Priceline now uh, now booking for um, uh, for a solid uh, 12 years. Both Netflix of all three of those were really decades long S&P 500 best in class stocks for a variety of different reasons. And in the book, I try to call out. What were those reasons? What were the what, what's the what's the pattern recognition so that, you know, we as investors can find the next Netflix and the next Amazon doesn't mean that Amazon and Netflix can't perform well from here. But what are the things you can see in common that can help you as a stock picker, you know, kind of see ahead? What, what really kind of started a lot of the, the the insights, the idea of the book was this wonderful book that was written in 1980 called uh, One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch, kind of a Bible uh, or, you know, a, a primer for anybody really looking to invest uh, in invest in the market with some wonderful advice. And I really had that. And he wrote it based on some wonderful examples of successful stocks and companies of his generation. And I thought somebody needed to write one about our generation and, uh, you know, these phenomenal money-making, uh, you know, wealth-creating uh, stocks that have, uh, that have uh, you know, soared the charts, topped the charts over the last 20, 10, 5, and even two years that have been dramatic winners from the COVID crisis, too. I, I try to keep it long-term in duration. And frankly, that's one of the big lessons I have in my book is, is uh, you know, long-term, I've found stocks do follow fundamentals. They just do. Companies get bigger, more revenue, more profits, their stocks go higher. Almost always, that's the case if you're a patient long-term investor. So you can make money just investing. You don't need to day trade. And I think that was the last thing that really inspired me to write this book. There are about 15 million new trading accounts that have opened up over the last two years, you know, the meme traders, the Robinhood accounts. And I just wanted to step back and say, look, you can have very good returns in the markets by buying high quality uh, companies, especially tech and growth companies. You don't have to day trade. You can sleep better at night. I got plenty of examples of companies that have created wonderful uh, share, shareholder returns over time. And there are stories that you can take your time and really understand and, and stick with. And uh, anyway, that's it. This is this book is a little bit of a little bit of personal memoir, but really more of a history of the great companies and the ones that failed. And then what are the lessons you can draw to apply going forwards? Got it. So I know it's uh, not in your coverage area, but you you would have a buy on GameStop. Is that what you're saying? No. <laughs> um, I, I, I nostalgia uh, requires me to ask, though, I, I am staring right now at a Pets.com a puppet still in the box that's uh like sort of a memento I have on my 
on my desk. Like, uh, were you covering like those guys at the at the dot uh, dot com boom bust? No, no, I didn't. But I refer to that in the book, and I make this. Uh, I, I draw the comparison. Um, you know, pets.com and some other, you know, pets.com went public with trailing 12 month, month revenues of 5 million. I don't know if you heard that right. $5 million, like trailing 12 months. They had been an operating company for under, uh, two years. I mean, how that thing got out, you know, in hindsight, um, is, uh, is, is, uh, is pretty shocking. Um, but wait a second, go, you know, go forward 15 years and what came out? Chewy.com. Chewy.com went public with three billion in uh, trailing uh, sales, and you know it was the same sort of basic value proposition to consumers. It's just that the market was a lot bigger. It allowed for a lot more scale, and a bunch of other things came out. Oh, like cell phones, smartphones, cloud computing, which allowed uh, uh, companies to scale up at much lower costs. And so the markets really were proved out. At the you know at the time of Pets.com, there were three unknowns: Is there really an internet market? Are there really good management teams? And are there really good business models? Today, the first question is emphatically yes. There are huge market opportunities, and they've been proven in the, in the internet space: advertising, you know, retail, entertainment, a lot of different ways you can cut it. Um, and there's some business models that have generated enormous amounts of free cash flow. And then there are yes, of course, there's always a few select excellent management teams. You find that right combination, it can be it's it's proven to be a great uh, uh, path to to making money in stocks. And Chewy has been a stock that I've really liked since its uh, IPO, even though it's the next pets.com. And that's the cynicism that people you know placed in front of it when they went public. This was a very different puppy. It, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's uh, it. <laughs> uh, it. It does. It seems like timing. It's, it seems obvious, but timing is such a big part of all that. Uh, uh, you, you referenced uh, Peter Lynch and um, uh, I know, you know, there's, there's all the old Netflix stuff. Uh, I actually started my career at Blockbuster Entertainment. And so in my, in my industry, everyone makes fun of Blockbuster that we got Netflix and, and all those sorts of things. And I always have to point out, you know, we sold Blockbuster for $18 billion in 1995, like five years before Netflix was invented. That's like pretty that, good. That it, it was a good business with a good exit. You know, every, every, every business has a, its, its moment and its time. And, uh, you know, the, the railroads aren't the investment that they once were either. Netflix is a fascinating story. Um, so let me let me let me jump to it a little bit. You know, one of the things, the punchline, I ask people, if you're going to remember one thing from my book, I hope you'll still buy it. But uh, if you're going to remember one thing from my book, it's DHQ. It's not DQ. That's Dairy Queen. DHQ is dislocated high quality companies. And, um, you know, time, you mentioned timing. I was thinking in terms of stock timing. I thought that's where you're going to take us. I, I think it's very hard to time stocks, but you know you can clearly see when stocks are dislocated, i.e. they've traded off 20, 30, 40%. So that's usually you know a time, if you think it's a high quality asset and it dislocates and they all dislocate from time to time, even the best highest quality names, that's when you can kind of step in, add the positions, uh, buy the stock, knowing that you've in a way mitigated some of the valuation risk. As investors, you're tr- as an investor, you're trying to do two things, mitigate valuation risk and mitigate fundamentals risk. You know, the chance that revenue Revenue falls off a cliff, margins get crushed. The way you mitigate that fundamentals um, um, risk is to focus on companies with large TAMs, excellent management teams, great product innovation, and superb customer uh, value prop. And you know, Netflix screens so well for me on those four things. I'll just tick this off super quickly, if you don't mind. First, no, please. Uh, you know, in- 
industry vision. So let's see, Reed Hastings invented or started Netflix back in 1997. Netflix, the name itself sort of implies that somehow we're going to be doing some streaming thing. And this is in 1997 when it would have taken you four hours to download the first five minutes of Terminator. Like there was no streaming market there, but yet that was the premise of the company. And 10 years later, you know, you look at the first initial interviews with Reed Hastings. I mean, this is where he was going to take the company all along. So I always have given him kudos for excellent industry vision and the fact that he was willing to cannibalize his existing DVD business for a streaming business. Very few entrepreneurs can do that. So management, you know, he checks my box. Customer value proposition, the best way to tell whether a customer, a company has a great value proposition is do they have pricing power? Do people love it you know so much that they'll pay more for it. starting in 2014 netflix started increasing pricing just about every other year and their sub ads accelerated that's a compelling that's evidence of compelling value proposition third is this uh product innovation and you know they they just done a lot of things not just streaming but there's a lot of these little tweaks at the side like binge watching you know kudos to netflix for just rolling out new series all at once i mean they practically invented uh binge watching and of course you know they sort of invented the streaming thing or the people who founded muzak really did that but but reed comes in a close a close second on that and then um you know and finally in terms of tams large tams total addressable markets you can add it up a couple of different ways but you know home entertainment video consumption it's a hundred it's a couple of hundred billion dollars in in total you know market opportunity and then who knows these things come along like smartphones and all of a sudden the majority of usage is on smartphones that tells you that you know, these markets could be a lot bigger than we traditionally thought just like spotify blew out the market for what really could be music uh, uh, advertising revenue and music subscription revenue. Uh, uh, Netflix did the same thing with with uh, video subscription revenue. They blew up the tan. They made it a lot bigger. So that's I you know, I love the, that story about the stories about Netflix. I give them a tremendous amount of kudos. I, I think that sometimes people underappreciate just because it's kind of a singular company, just, you know, video uh, video streaming. I think they uh, I think they don't get enough credit for what they've done and what they could still do, because I think there's still one more. One more trick up uh, of Reed Hastings' sleeve, and I think it's gaming. And he's reached; they've received such so much skepticism about this pivot or this expansion in the gaming. But you know, a management team that figured out DVD by mail, streaming, original content, international expansion. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that they can figure out an innovative new way to deliver gaming and therefore further increase their value proposition. You'd want to stick with a company like that. I stick with a stock like that. I have a kind of a random question. Let's say there was, I'll pick something at random, a company that was reinventing car care and making it mobile and digital. Would you call that a DHQ? <laughs> Ask, I think asking for a friend. Yes, yes, absolutely. Clearly. <laughs> All right, leading the witness. Um, I do have to give you kudos because in the Netflix um, section, you do have a Star Wars reference. You, you talk about the Disney Death Star, which is, uh, yes. Which is appropriate because they now own the Death Star. It's got part of their. It's one of their IPs. Um, but by the way, that was you know there were a couple of uh, Netflix. There's a Rocky stock. Uh, Rocky stock. Yeah, that's right. That's a that's a Rocky stock for you. It's had. There were two times they missed subs because of uncertainty over the price increases, and they got some pushback. It wasn't obvious that they had pricing power, but they proved it over time. And then they've got this great competitive risk with Disney. And I think what the market missed on that. I don't, this is just kind of leaving aside the book and just talking about stock picks is 
you know, people are going to sign up for multiple streaming services. Now, not now, not five, six or seven, but they'll sign up for two or three if there's original content and they have original content. I mean, there's some things you will you have to sign up for Disney Plus for if you if people are like you, Scott, and, you know, dramatic um, Star Wars fans, of course, you're going to sign up for Disney Plus. But, you know, there's because it's original content. You know, if you want to watch Squid Game, there's one and one only place you can go for that. And, you know, there's going to be another Squid Game or, you know, another show that just kind of breaks through the zeitgeist. And by the way, that's where Netflix is. So I'll leave Netflix aside. But what I'm so struck by is this company shapes the zeitgeist, whether they can cause a run on chessboard sales worldwide with the Queen's Gambit a year ago, where they can cause more people to start studying Korean on Duolingo, a language app, which actually I like as a stock, because they can, uh, you know, they, they've introduced this show squid games like when a company reaches the zeitgeist when they when they become almost like a lucky lexicon like they become a verb like i'm going to google that or you know it's the uber of this that or that um you know that's that's something special and those are usually stocks that have got very long runways yeah and um uh i'm here in north carolina and uh we have all these uh mba we have all these universities and i was actually speaking earlier this week at an mba class over over at duke and um you know it, I have this whole little joke track that I do where I talk about my first company was profitable and I, I learned I could never raise VC because I'd go pitch VCs and they'd say, you're profitable. We don't invest in profitable companies. So, uh, yeah, I often joke that I've been doing it wrong. And ever since then, I haven't made a dime. Uh, <laughs> uh and, uh, I kind of thought it was, uh, I thought it was funny because you, you kind of, the internet sector was kind of early before SaaS where, and, and you point this out where there's kind of, you know, what, what we learned is there is an investor that loves revenue growth. And in a way, the the opposite side of that coin is it can actually hurt you if you start to make profits. Uh, maybe share with listeners that that you know probably many of them come from traditional businesses where that sounds nonsensical. Maybe maybe explain kind of what happened there. Well, I want to be I want to be I want to get nuanced here, which is um, you know I, I have a chapter that says the most important thing out there is revenue, revenue, revenue. You know, for tech stocks and growth stocks, but of course, earnings and free cash flow matter. It's that uh, I think sometimes the public market is a lot longer term focused than people give it credit for. Netflix is a great example of that, or so is Amazon. I mean, those those businesses had if you looked at near term valuation, P.E. metrics, price to free cash flow, there's no way you would have bought those stocks. But what I think long term growth investors realized is there's this, you know, when these get these assets that can grow their top line 20 to 30 percent plus from scale for multiple years, like that can that creates an enormous amount of value over time. And it's so rare. Um, I came up with uh, something of a 20 percent rule. Uh, you know, it's uh, one to two percent of the S&P 500 that can consistently grow at from scale um, their top line 20 percent, which is like five times faster or six times faster than global GDP growth. So it's rare for good reasons. Uh, but those companies dramatically outperform the market because they're rare and um it's not like growth and scale solve everything, but geez, they solve a lot of things. I've yet to see, um, it's got, you know, you go way back on this. I'm sure you had these comments like Amazon will never turn a profit. My first year on the street, the, the person who's now a, one of the most influential, uh, investors out there put his finger in my chest and said, you know, Amazon will never be profitable. And, you know, I guess he must have been right. I mean, he was so smart, but he was wrong because he didn't realize just what, how powerful Amazon could be as it scaled over time. I mean, uh, you generate billions and billions of revenue and you can, you can run over a lot of your fixed costs as long as you're not selling dollars for 95 cents. 
you know, if you're, you know, if you're selling them for a dollar and two cents, uh, and then you get scale against your fixed costs, yeah, scale will solve just about anything. And I look at what happened with uh, Amazon, and then I've looked at more, much more recently. Let's bring it up to up to date to Uber. Uber just printed its first free cash flow quarter ever, even though its rideshare business is like down forty percent since pre-COVID levels. How the heck did they do that? Because they took a lot of costs out of the business, and then they had this delivery business that really scaled. So, look, earnings matter. It's just that when we look at tech stocks and growth stocks, you know, especially early on as IPOs, they rarely go public uh, as profitable businesses. The question you have to answer for yourself is, can they be profitable long term? Are there companies that are already, you know, with similar business models that already are? That's one way. Are there segments of the business that are already profitable? Is there a reason that scale can't drive profitability for the company? And the fourth, what I call profitability action question, and I detail this in a book, is, you know, are there specific steps that the management team can take to bring the, product, the company to profitability? So I've yet to see a company, uh, and I'm sure there are some, but I've yet to see one that hit the public markets that couldn't scale itself to profitability. Now, some blew up, but, you know, that's because they couldn't hit enough scale. So that's that's kind of my answer to the question of, yes, of course, earnings and free cash flow matter. At the end of the day, that's what they're going to be valued on. But just watch these companies. If they really execute well, they can take what looks like really aggressive valuations. And over time, those valuations can turn awfully, uh, awfully attractive. And uh, a lot of times the stock wealth creation goes from point A to point B. It doesn't start at point B. Uh, yeah. The, you know, it's you mentioned then uh the Netflix uh, effect on the cultural zygote. Uh, fun, fun stat on uh, Queen's Gamut. Uh, it it drove the sale of millions of chessboard and caused hundreds of people to start playing chess. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I do. Uh, w- one of the things that comes out strongest in in the book to me, and that you you alluded to up front, is sort of the difference between trading and investing. Um, you know, I always have people come up to me and they're like, Hey, you know, a lot about these retail companies, what's a good investment. And I'm like, I have no idea. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about sort of what you mean, uh, by, by sort of fundamental investing versus trading? Well, I, I sum it all up in a pithy expression. Uh, don't play quarters. Um, I, I find playing quarters is almost a fool's game. The number of times I get questions, you know, what should I buy for the quarter? And um, for uh, you know sophisticated institutional investors, that could be I've got a position in Amazon or Google or uh, Twitter, and um, sh- uh, you know do I should I be you know heading into the position prior to earnings or you know tracing back and adding to it more afterwards? Okay, that's a different setup. But if you're just pay- playing a-, a company for that that quarter pop, the problem is. Quarterly earnings reactions, uh, there's two things that drive them. Fundamentals, great. You can get the fundamentals right, but it's expectations. So those quarter trades are really about expectations. You may get the, the quarter right. You may be right that NVIDIA or Roblox are going to have super strong quarters because I see how many of my friends' kids are all over Roblox. You may be well right on that. But you have to know, you know what the market is actually expecting. And uh, numbers can go up. Revenue can accelerate. But if the bar is higher than that, then, you know, you're going to see these stocks trade off. It happens a lot. So I just unless you're unless you're a pro, unless you're in day in and day out, you know, working, uh, you know, working these stocks and uh, really have a sense of where the expectations are. I think it's just a fool's game to play uh, play uh, stocks just for quarters. Uh, instead, you know, you want to stick with stocks for the um, you know, you want to find an asset that you think is going to be 
materially bigger in two to three years down the road and you think it's high quality based on some of the screens I threw out, then stick with that name and don't try to play around the quarters. Um, and it's in fact, sometimes you can use weakness or, or, or strength around the quarter to you know adjust your position, but don't use it to initiate or close out a position. At the, the, then you fall trapped to these expectations game that it's very hard to participate in if you're just a regular you know retail investor. And you can make just as much money just staying invested in some of these great assets. Uh, that, that is great advice. And it's, I certainly resonate with the sticking with the investments. Uh, I, I am curious though, on the other end of that, on the really long horizon, you mentioned you've, you've been, uh, uh, had a buy on Amazon for like 15 years. Like, how, <laughs> like, are you going to have a buy on them for the next 15 years? Is that how, I mean, like, does there come a point when they achieve their potential and you have to start worrying about them getting on the other side of the hill? Yeah, I think you can. Um, I think you can one look for the fundamental tell, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna spin over to another stock uh, I talk about in the book, uh, Priceline, which is actually the single best performing S and P 500 uh, stock for like a 10 year period, 2005 to 2015. Phenomenal stock, travel name. Everybody knows it, William Shatner, et cetera. Uh, although their real secret sauce was what they did in European markets, but. Um, but that's a company that, uh, you know, sustained premium growth. Like they were growing their bookings and their revenue 40% year over year for years and years and years and years. And that's what powered that, uh, uh, that, uh, that, uh, stock. Um, and when it stopped to materially outperform the market was when the growth rate decelerated below 20%. And so I don't want to you know, create a hard and fast rule, but I do feel strongly about this 20 percent rule, 20 percent. You know, we're close to it. You know, don't don't nick me at 19.8 percent. You know, close to 20 percent is unusual, rare air growth. And the markets usually pay up uh, for that. And when you see a company over time, either because of misexecution, it happens or market maturity and the growth rates, you know, kind of slide below 20 percent. Then that's when you reconsider your position. That's a simplistic rule. There's a lot of caveats to that. What I see with Amazon here is despite the size of this business, I think they're still growing 20% for the next five years. So and that if that's the case, um, you know, the, the simple rule of thumb is companies that can grow like they can. I like to see stocks that can double in um, in three years. In order to do that, you kind of have to do, you know, 20 to 25% earnings growth. That's what it maps out to. And, you know, you can double a stock in, in three years. You're handily beating the market in almost all time periods. And so when I see what will change my opinion really on Amazon is if I believe that this company is going to go X growth, it's going to go you know well below 20 percent revenue growth. I just don't see that in the next couple of years, given how much growth they have in retail, in AWS and cloud computing. And in some of these really newer areas that I'm really interested in, whether they really can crack the code on groceries. And if they can, that's a large opportunity and uh, business uh, supplies, industrial supplies. I, I think that's an, a very underappreciated part of uh, of Amazon's business. So I don't see myself changing my opinion on Amazon. Although, you know, one of the things that we talked about this earlier that I love to see are founder led companies. That's no longer the case with, uh, with Amazon. So that's, you know, at some level, I've got slightly less conviction than the, in the buy case, but I'm going to stick with it as long as the numbers prove out right. As long as I can see this path, this consistent 20% revenue growth. Yeah. And this is a uh, kind of breaking out of the book thing, but since you brought up Amazon, it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't kind of double click on that what did any thoughts on the q2 and, and q3 earnings feels like they're slowing down a bit and feeling some of the labor and su- what we call supply pain on the show um are you are you getting nervous about it or you think it's just a little one of their little kind of investment phases i called it the uh six billion dollar kitchen sink 
Um, that's how much lower their guidance was uh, for operating income in the December quarter than um, than what the street was looking for. Like the street was looking for close to eight billion, and they guided to two billion, six billion dollar kitchen sink, and they threw it all in there. Uh, wage inflation, you know, you you ride you drive that uh, Route ninety five uh, on the East Coast, and you'll see Amazon. Amazon is hiring billboards up and down the East Coast seaboard. I did it recently, and uh, so yeah, they're aggressively hiring at, at higher wages. That's impacting their margins. There's still some COVID related uh, costs. Uh, shipping. Um, uh, they're just not able to as efficiently source and bring in uh, product. And so they have to bring in uh, product um, uh, into the, the ports that aren't optimized for their distribution network. So just a lot of costs that are blowing up. Now, the question you have to ask for yourself as an investor is, uh, are those are those cost increases elective, structural, discretionary, temporary? It's kind of like, which of those are they? The more that you can make a determination that the cost spikes are temporary, the more you stick with the the name. If you think there's something structurally changed about Amazon, okay, that's different. I don't think there's anything structurally changed about uh, Amazon. It's certainly not its competitive position. And then the last thing, which I really like to see, frankly, is this company... I mean, the level of investment this company is making in its distribution network. You know, you talked about Facebook earlier. They're dumping 10 billion into the metaverse, which I think there's a there there, but I don't know. Amazon is dumping billions and billions into its own logistics network. Like they're doubling down on their core competency. You bet I'll stick with that. And what they're going to, what's going to come out of that is even faster and faster delivery. I and mean, they're going to prove out this concept that what I call shipping elasticity. The faster you ship, the more the people are going to use you and the more of their, of the more of their wallet and purse share you're going to, Amazon's going to get. So they're going to, they're going to uh, super up one day delivery and then they're going to super up super same day uh, delivery. And I think they'll be able to just grab more and more and offer more and more uh, 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 products to people. So I like those kind of investment initiatives. So I think a lot of that margin pressure, by the way, is was really due to these kind of elective investments in the infrastructure. They added more distribution capacity the last two years than Walmart has in its history. That's how aggressive Amazon is being. And I, you know, my guess is that they're, we're going to see dramatic market share gains from Amazon in the next uh uh, uh, 12 months. So I, I like those companies that kind of really lean in, bend in, and then double down on their core competency. That's what Amazon is doing now. Yeah, the um, the press is making a lot of noise around Shopify versus Amazon, and Shopify is kind of amplifying that with their you know arming the rebels and everything. Um, Jason kind of makes I won't I won't say his thing, but he he's he's not a believer in that. I, I think it's kind of interesting, and there's definitely no love lost between the companies. What what's your take on that? Is that a real battle, or is that just kind of ginned up by to to kind of raise awareness for Shopify? You have you have a quick point of view on that, Scott? Uh, I think Shopify becomes a marketplace, and Jason thinks that's crazy. Uh, Jason, what do you what? Do you, I'll let you state your own opinion. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I. I think Shopify is a phenomenal company and a good executor. So I'm I'm not throwing rocks at Shopify. I just they're to me they're not a competitor to Amazon. They they don't acquire customers. They they have no traffic. Um, they're they're a piece of infrastructure and a a great valuable piece of infrastructure. But a piece of infrastructure um doesn't draw any customers in. So like all these people that are like oh man they're like Amazon. They have all this aggregated GMV and they could sell ads to it and they can, you know, recruit more sellers uh, because they have this this audience and all these things. Well, they, they don't have any of those things. They don't have a single B2C marketer in their company. And I would argue that's that's been one of Amazon's core competencies is they've 
they use the flywheel to build this this huge audience that they get to sell all the uh, their goods and services to. Um, so I just I, I don't think they they compete in any any meaningful way. And I think if Shopify were to try to become a a true B two C company like Amazon, um, it would just be a phenomenal pivot. It would be you know can't you know obviously they have the resources to to fund trying for it, but I, I I'm not sure that's the best move for them. Yeah, I don't. Um, so I, I do cover Shopify. I've been really impressed with them. I don't know them as well as I know Amazon, but I've been super impressed uh, with them. And uh, in terms of the product development, and they are just providing more and more services to small merchants. So I, I think there's, uh, and they're now bigger than uh, eBay in terms of GMV, although I can never, there's not a t- enough disclosure to figure out. So where's that GMV coming? Because I think some of that probably does come through uh, eBay. So there's a little bit of double counting that goes on in there. But it's really impressive what they've pulled together, whether they can actually aggregate demand in a way that Amazon has. I think that's I think that's unlikely. I think that's a very hard thing to do. It's possible. They do have a shop app. I just yeah, I guess that's the action question we all have to ask ourselves. Do you think you're going to use the shop app to shop? I don't think so. I don't think people are going to do that. But, you know, if they can get enough people to do that, boy, they will have really um, they will have really circled it, uh, they, you know, because they, they got the infrastructure. Uh, OK, they're talking about building out uh, fulfillment um, and doing fulfillment for people and spending a billion dollars on it. Um, sorry, my friends, uh, you're, you're going to have to spend a heck of a lot more than a billion if you uh, if you really want to you know, compete because the bar is getting higher. It's not getting lower. It's getting higher in terms of, you know, the speed of delivery. eBay learned this the hard way. And, uh, you know, so Shopify is going to have to spend a lot more than that. So anyway, there's a lot of wonderful things about uh, Shopify. And I don't know whether if you, this thing's a slam dunk buy, if you think they can build up and aggregate an audience, I don't think they can. So it doesn't, it doesn't make it a slam dunk buy. It's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a deep three point shot, put it that way. Yeah. And, And you're not Steph Curry. <laughs> I, I like we're going back to the basketball references in the book. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, it, you know, it, I, I tend to agree. I'm not, I don't think the shop app, uh, you know, has, has attracted uh, an audience that uses it for shopping yet. It's a, it's a shipping trapping tracking app at the moment, but um, the, it is funny. Like there are lots of companies that facilitate huge amounts of GMV. So I think of like, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, an Akamai is a, is a um, a CDN that's that's used by almost every retailer to help help sell stuff, right? And so, if you said, "Well, what's the CD the GMV of Akamai?" Well, it's bigger than Amazon's, um, but that doesn't mean that Akamai can compete with Amazon. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I I do want to go back to Amazon earnings uh, just briefly because I you know I, I think a lot of uh, the slowdown is is kind of a covid blip and I, I don't know if you ever think of it this way but there 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 are times in history when um it feels like the external factors aren't aren't a big influence and and you know some companies perform really well and other companies struggle so you know there could be a year when you see home depot doing really well and lowe's struggling and you say there's something special about home depot that i might be interested in investing in at the moment it feels like the external environment for retail is having a sort of a, a consistent effect on everyone, right? And so you look at the industry averages, you look at all of Amazon's peers, and they all have sort of the the same shape of deceleration that Amazon has. So it's uh, to me, it's hard to attribute that to some some fundamental flaw in Amazon. But there is one thing I noticed 
this quarter that it was interesting. And I wanted to get your opinion about because I know as an investor, you like seeing companies that have pricing power. And, you know, of course, Amazon famously raised the price of Prime uh, a while back and seems like that was wildly successful. This quarter, they've raised the price for grocery delivery. They're now charging $10 delivery fees, even for Prime members. And then this week we saw that they made a pretty substantial increase to the cost of FBA, which is, you know, a fundamental service used by almost all marketplace sellers. And they, they, they just raised the price of that by like 5%. And I'm, I'm curious, do you look at that as a good sign that, hey, um, they have pricing power and they're doing so well that they, they can command those prices? Or to me, it's a potential warning sign because I feel like Amazon is so um, a zealous and advocate of the flywheel. And the flywheel is all about driving costs down to get scale up. Um, I, I just was surprised to see some of the, these like price increases in, in uh, you know, uh, like especially grocery, which isn't super mature yet. Well, um, uh, I'm not sure really uh, of the answer to your question, Jason. It's a it's a it's a really good thoughtful question on the on the groceries. I think they raised it because the unit economics were just not working for them in terms of grocery delivery. That's that's my guess. They also you know have yet to have they've yet to really crack the code on on the grocery business, and so I, I sort of see that as. Um, uh, they they tried it and they just can't right size the economics, so they got to charge more for it. So I read that kind of negatively. On the on the, on with the the raising fees to sellers, well, my guess is it's a mixture of things, but it's largely driven. Uh, my guess is that it's largely driven off of just rising, um, uh, uh, um, you know, rising infrastructure costs. I mean, rising shipping costs. I mean, rising uh, the the two costs that they called out specifically on their earnings call. My recall is correct is our steel costs because of all of that uh, construction they're doing with their fulfillment centers and trucking services. And um, and so my guess is that they've uh, they're doing this not necessarily the right size, of the economics, because I think the economics are working, but because they want to try to keep uh, their, their unit economics relatively intact. Um, and that's sort of the way I think they thought about the raising the price of prime. It wasn't they did it because they could. Um, it's, uh, they did it cause they sort of had to, like the costs are rising. It's just that what I found interesting in terms of pricing power is they had an acceleration in, in prime ads, you know, post that price increase like that. And so does Netflix too. I mean, Netflix is essentially raise fees, use the fees to, you know, uh, generate more revenue, buy more content. It's like a flywheel that they've worked with there, make the service more, bring in more users, uh, allows them to get a little bit, raise money just a little bit more. So it's not so much raising fees to extract excess profits. It's raising fees to further uh, accelerate growth. And the value proposition is strong enough that they can do that and not lose customers. That's that's that that there's a, there's a subtle nuance and maybe it's too subtle, but but I think it's an important it's an important difference. It's not it's it's so it's raising pricing not to raise margins. It's raising pricing to fuel growth. Uh, and uh, when you so either way, it's, it's good. I, I happen to think you you want to the, the, the better one is the, the latter one is a more impressive. Uh, the latter one is more impressive because you're raising pricing just to goose your margins. You know, you just put a target on your back. Cool. Um, reading the book made me nostalgic and maybe we'll do a little bit of a lightning round, but uh, one of the companies you wrote about that I kind of forgot about and uh, that was interesting was Zoo Lily. Uh, I remember when they came on the scene and and we were all like, I think we we're all blown away by how fast they could just get product up, right? They had this thing where they could, they could have 
and most of it was kids. So they'd get like all these little kid models in there and throw some clothes on them, take a picture and then like change the outfit, take another. So they could do something like, you know, a thousand different products an hour or something. Um, what, what's your recollection on Zulily? Zulily is, that was one of my calls that didn't work. Uh, and, um, uh, so I, I, uh, and I learned some lessons from that. I think to me, the lesson I, I drew had to do with value proposition, uh, they had a wonderful cohort disclosure in their S1 when they went public. I mean, it was truly impressive. And, um, you know, the, they also raised kind of an analytical question because the first, it's not too dissimilar to Stitch Fix today. The first three or four million customers were extremely happy. The question is, were there another three to four million customers that could be extremely happy? And the problem that Zulily faced is that its customer value proposition uh, had one major flaw, which is that you couldn't return product if you didn't like it. They didn't they didn't accept returns. Oh, I'm sorry. There were two problems and there was no speedy delivery. You know, you could get stuff in seven days and 20 days. Um, uh, that was good for the first the, the first three to four million customers were fine with that. You break into the mainstream and you mean I can't return something if I don't like it. You mean I got to wait how many days until I get something like that ended up. Uh, and you, it was a very hard thing to survey. You really had to go with gut instinct on that, um, you know, to realize in advance that they were going to hit a wall in their growth. But geez, when you saw what happened to their growth rate, when they went public, it was triple digits. Six quarters later, they were doing 10% revenue growth. They hit the wall because the value proposition wasn't strong enough. And then they ended up going, uh, going private. That to me was kind of the lesson, which is, you know, the, um, Growth was impressive, but that value proposition, if it's not, if they hadn't, if they didn't have it nailed down and you knew from the beginning, I knew from the beginning what the two flaws were. I just, I didn't know when it would hit them and it hit them earlier than I thought. So, uh, you know, it's, I guess it's another reason to really focus on how compelling do you think this value proposition is? How many, you know, will that, can the, can the customer base double given the existing value prop? And, um, uh, that's one of the big lessons if I spin it a little bit. I mean, that's to me is, and Scott, you lived through this entire history. Like, uh, you know, the first decade of the internet, the king of online retail wasn't Amazon. It was eBay. And they had like six times, seven times the market cap of Amazon. That's completely changed. And why has it changed? And I think in part, it's because of the value prop. I mean, Amazon just beat them on price selection and convenience year in and year out. And that really mattered. But a more recent example in my book, uh, in literally and figuratively is, uh, DoorDash and Grubhub. And that's, uh, you know, example many people will, will know, but Grubhub had a, a great business model, wonderful investor centric business model, high margins. Um, and DoorDash had this, you know, uh, generating tons of losses. Uh, but they had the better value prop because they had more restaurant selection. And, uh, at the end of the day that they, they won and they were able to scale up and generate sort of reasonable profits, uh, over time. That was a case where my, my quick tagline is, you know, customer centric companies beat investor centric companies most of the time in market cap and in market share. Amazon versus eBay, uh, Grubhub versus DoorDash. Those two examples really drilled that lesson into me. Yeah, uh, I, I've been following those companies because, you know, they're they're like increasingly overlapping with a lot of my commerce clients. And like, you know, a big a big sort of disruption in commerce right now is all these ultra fast delivery services. And, you know, it seems pretty clear that DoorDash and Uber are both going to want to play directly in that space. So so it seems like some of those those sectors are on a collision course to chase that TAM. I think you're right, Jason. I also think Amazon, I mean. You're talking about logistics, like that's Amazon's yeah. competency. So uh, whether you need to, 
whether you're going to vertically integrate and do that or whether you're going to do that virtually, you know, through a, you know, a gig economy network, um, I don't know which which is going to work better uh, long term. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, my, and, you know, it's going to raise the bar and make it more and more expensive for anybody to operate in that uh, in that segment. I, I have a bias that Amazon in the end wins that, but it's big enough of a market. It's so early stage that you can have multiple winners for the next five years. I don't know that you can have multiple winners for the next 10 years, though. Yeah. No, uh, there, was, there was a funny question in the Amazon um, earnings call. Uh, someone asked about ultra fast delivery and the CFO kind of, uh, I thought brilliantly threw some shade on it. He's like, uh, uh, he said something to the effect of we, we like where we are in ultra fast. Like we, we have one hour delivery on about 178,000 SKUs right now. And we're, you know, we're going to continue to scale that. And I, I don't know how many people follow this, but all, all of the competitors in the space are, are desperately trying to figure out how to do one hour delivery for like 7,000 SKUs. So, so like they're, you know, they, they definitely are going to be able to leverage the infrastructure there. And I, I, I'm sure they're making some big investments in that space too. Uh, another area that's, that's been kind of interesting lately. And I know you've been following this a little bit is obviously there are all these, um, uh, privacy changes and the depreciation of the third party cookies and especially the, the IDFA, you know, uh, mobile privacy changes, uh, that, that Apple's instituted. And that obviously had a pretty, pronounced impact on the value of some companies like snap recently have you do you have a opinion there is that is that a blip or is that a systemic change i think it's a big pothole in the road um but it's not the, but the, but the um it's a big pothole in the road but it's not a bridge that uh it's not a collapse bridge did i, did I get that out analogy yeah. right i yeah. like okay. it yeah yeah uh, uh, so uh, uh it is boy, infrastructure that, week Yes. Yes, it is. Um, yeah, that's a, that's pretty. I mean, that's a big pothole um, that uh, IDFA allowed Facebook to offer amazing attribution to millions and millions and millions of businesses. And now that's gone. Um, and uh, and and to their credit, to Facebook's credit, they warned about it for a year to Snap's discredit. They didn't warn about it ever. And so that's why their stock went off, you know, 20 declined 25 percent, whereas Facebook stock, even though numbers came in weaker than expected, you know, kind of fell off two to three percent. And by the way, then is traded up above where it was at uh, at earnings time. So um, what I'm I'm very intrigued by is I think there will be a son of IDFA, uh, you know, child of IDFA. Like, I, I think there's so much at stake here, both from the advertising platforms like Facebook, you know, and Google to some extent, a little bit and Snapchat. But also for, you know, the millions of marketers out there who, you know, you were able to thank thanks to Facebook's use of people's privacy data, you know, for right or for wrong. I mean, that's what that's just what they they did. I mean, this helped merchants really know which of their campaigns worked and it allowed them to, you know, run creative and that that creative could be automatically you know, A, B tested, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, like eight times, eight different ways. And whichever those creatives work best. You could attribute success to one of them. Then you could just pivot all of the dollars behind that one campaign, you know, campaign H or campaign B or campaign E. And uh, that's just a wonderful way to help these small businesses, you know, really succeed. And that's been taken away. Now, uh, you know, I think there's first a little bit of shock. Shoot, I can't get the attribution I had. I'm going to pull away my marketing dollars. But marketers got a market. And I think you're going to see those dollars come back. And my guess is that Facebook and other companies are going to find some way to do better targeting. They may not quite get to IDFA type of levels, 
but they're going to be able to do some sort of audience targeting. They also have a lot of first party data, but they'll be able to do it in a way that doesn't um, that, you know, respects people's uh, uh, privacy. And um, yeah, and you'll see those dollars come back. So that's why I refer to it as a pothole. I, I it's a big pothole. It's but it's not a it's not a bridge that just collapsed. Uh, you know, you're going to you can they can they, they got stuck in that pothole more than anybody else. But, you know, the, 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 the cranes there, whatever they're getting, you know, tow trucks there, they're getting out of it. They got to do some, you know, body work uh, they'll they'll fix the car and it'll be back on the road in, in part because they've got the, the talent to do it. But in part because there are millions of small businesses that are given going to give them the incentive to do it because they'll get those marketing dollars back once they figure out son of IDFA. Yeah, uh, I always like to remind people that are like the sky's falling on the advertising industry that, you know, it wasn't very long ago that we had much worse targeting than than we have in digital, even with IDFA. I mean, targeting used to be deciding which publication you were going to print your ad in. And they still got a lot of money in the advertising industry. <laughs> so, uh, like, I, 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 I kind of suspect that uh, that marketers are going to figure out, you know, the best ways to invest their money, even if it maybe isn't quite as as uh, real time as as uh, uh, people got used to for a short while. I think you're right, Jason. So, so Mark, you, uh, in the book, you recap kind of this awesome 25 year career. And, you know, one of the things I I've learned is if you're in the game of making predictions, you know, that it's kind of humbling, but then you, you kind of slowly, but surely get better at it. Right. You never get to kind of, you know, a hundred percent, but over time you get better. And like, like, for example, you learned the, the lesson of, uh, the companies that are customer focused tend to do better than investor focused, the founder based and that kind of thing. Um, as you, as you take those, backward 25 year learnings and project them forward. What are some of the things that you get excited about looking out the next five or 10 years? Well, in terms of uh, uh, trends, e- even the next year or two, I think whoever solves marketing attribution is going to be worth a lot more in two years than they are today, just because there's so many businesses, uh, so many marketers that will pay for that. Um, so I, I, you know, so that's, that's kind of a, a de- that whoever whoever fills in the pothole. That's going to be a very valuable company. It's going to be a lot more valuable in two years than it is today. My guess is that that's going to be Facebook. So I'm interested in that. Then there's thing this thing called the metaverse, which I don't know. This is just virtual reality, just renamed. Do a Google trend search on metaverse and just watch that just spike up in the last month. So. You know, kudos to the person who came up with that idea. Maybe I don't know. Maybe Jason or Scott. Maybe it was you. I, it's it's just be- a rebranded Second Life. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, uh, um, but, but, you know, the fact that, um, and there's two things that kind of strike me. There's some pretty big companies throwing a lot of big money at metaverse, uh, you know, Facebook, Microsoft, and there's a bunch of others. And then there's this Roblox generation, um, of, uh, People, young people who are perfectly comfortable living in the metaverse and virtual reality and, you know, uh, participating in concerts uh, safely uh, and, um, you know, and and shopping and communicating and entertaining uh, and learning and learning through the metaverse. And so, you know, when those um, eight to 18 year olds, you know, get out into the real world, um, you know, they're going to be perfectly comfortable in the metaverse. Maybe not in a way, you know, not in a way that we will naturally be, but you know, they'll uh, they'll help us figure it out. And so, um, so I'm I'm really intrigued by uh, the metaverse. I think it is going to take five to ten years for that to really uh, uh, develop. And I'm trying to trying to figure it out and who the big winners are. But um, but I, I'm I'm very intrigued by that. 
Yeah, and I've also got one of those Oculus. You know, I've gotten the different versions, generations, the it's the iterations of uh, the Oculus Rift, and you know, I I've always it's kind of like when I first saw the Kindle. You know, the first Kindle I ever got was pretty darn kludgy, but you know, I just love the idea that you could just download any book onto your kludgy device. You know, whenever you whenever you were in a Wi-Fi area, and um, and I and and you could, and then you just saw how that device got better and better each iteration. And so I just think about that with these um, with these virtual reality headsets. I mean, they're clumpy, they're clunky, they're kludgy. It's kind of embarrassing to be you know have a picture of you taking in them. But you know, just you can imagine. You already know how much they've improved over the last couple of years. And just think ahead. Uh, is it possible in the next five to seven years? It's going to be just it's going to be like putting on a pair of sunglasses. I think that's what we should be thinking about. And if you can easily put on a pair of sunglasses um, and 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 enter the metaverse and have, you know, uh, share a virtual, you know, in presence experience. That sounds I don't know if that sounds odd or not, but if you can do that. I think a lot of people will do that. And, uh, you know, the education, the work applications around that. So I'm very intrigued by that. So you're saying that that could be uh, Chewy.com to Google Glasses, uh, Pets.com. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. I love that. Yes. I hadn't thought about that way. Yeah. I, and by the way, I've got my Google Glass here. You know, I am uh, got that. I got that early version. I got the Amazon Fire Phone, you know, the, but, you know, just the the the, the early failures sometimes see these. I mean, they're, they're kind of in the right direction. Uh, I don't know exactly what I, there's a there's a backstory to to Google Glass that we only partially know, uh, but uh, anyway, the 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 concept is there, and um, uh, and you know the the iterations, the these the products do get better, uh, and uh, and as they get better, easier, cheaper, lighter, cooler, uh, you know, like Main Street cooler, not Silicon Valley cooler, then uh, then markets can appear. I think that's something the three of us have in common. I think the three of us are probably the only people that. Ha- ordered and probably still own an Amazon Fire Phone. <laughs> Jeff Yos. And I've got my socks.com puppet too. It's in my office. I have one of those. <laughs> got it as a warning. Yeah, we all I guess we all have one of those too. That that puppet ended up being the most valuable asset from pets.com side note. Like I don't know if you followed it, but there was there was there was a whole intellectual property fight with uh, Triumph, the comedy dog and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, Unintended value, unintended value creation. Well, Mark, we, uh, you know, we've used up a, about an hour of your time. We really appreciate, appreciate you coming on the show to tell us about the book. Um, when's it come out? Where can people find it? Do you, uh, do you want them to order from that Seattle bookstore that we've been chatting about? So, uh, yeah. And, and thanks, Scott and Jason. I've always enjoyed uh, listening to your show. I did tell you at the beginning, I, your, your analysis recently on Allbirds and Warby Parker, I took to heart because uh, I initiated uh, on Warby Parker as an analyst. But uh, after after I'd seen what your thoughts uh, were on it. Uh, so thanks for having me on the show and to talk about the book, uh, Nothing But Net, 10 Timeless Stock Picking Lessons from One of Wall Street's Top Tech Analysts. I just like the Nothing But Net. I'm a big hoops fan. And my, my kids are hoops, and that's been my email tagline. So there's a lot of meaning for me in that uh, that title. It is available wherever fine literature is sold. It is available on Amazon. It's the it's a top bestseller now in the in the business category. So um, I, I've been uh, I've been uh, just it was just a it was a labor of love for me, and uh, thrilled I got a chance to talk with both of you about it because you've lived through this history just as much as I have, and it's fascinating the lessons we can draw from it. Well, Mark, it's uh, been entirely our privilege, and uh, it's a great sign that, you know, just halfway through your career, you had enough material for an amazing book. So I, I can't wait to to read the the sequel after the next half. Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll, t- we'll do it again in 25 years.
All right, I've, it's a date. I'm, I'm I'm booking it right now. Uh, <laughs> our sock pup, our pets.com puppets and our Amazon Fire Phones. Yes. Yeah. Every everyone else will be living in the metaverse at that point, and no one's going to get it. But it's cool. <laughs> But uh, Mark, uh, really appreciated your time. And until next time, happy commercing.